Welcome to Cinema Talk, the official podcast of the UW Cinematheque in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Jim Healy, the Cinematheque's Director of Programming. This summer, the Cinematheque has been presenting a three-film series tribute to Charles Bronson in honor of the legendary movie star's upcoming centennial. The series concludes on July 30th with one of Bronson's most offbeat projects, From Noon Till Three, written and directed by Frank D. Gilroy and originally released in 1976. In a welcome and comic change of pace, Bronson plays Graham Dorsey, a not-too-successful bank robber who abandons his outlaw gang to enjoy an afternoon tryst with young widow Amanda Starbuck, played by Jill Ireland, the real-life Mrs. Bronson, who for the first time in their 13 movies together is given a leading role of equal stature. Later in the story, Amanda mistakenly believes Graham to be dead, and she writes a book fictionalizing their affair that turns Graham into a folk hero. Consistently clever and sometimes shockingly surprising, From Noon Till Three was the creation of the playwright and screenwriter Frank D. Gilroy, who began his career in the 1950s, writing numerous episodes for live television drama shows like Playhouse 90, Omnibus, The U.S. Steel Hour, Studio One, and Craft Theater, and later numerous episodes of filmed Western shows like The Rifleman, Wanted Dead or Alive, Have Gun Will Travel, and Disney's Texas John Slaughter. In the 1960s, Frank Gilroy won the Pulitzer Prize and the Tony Award for his play The Subject Was Roses, which was adapted into a 1968 movie directed by Ulu Grossbard. Later, Gilroy himself turned to directing feature films in the 1970s, beginning with the 1971 release Desperate Characters, starring Shirley MacLaine. After From Noon Till Three, which was released and distributed by United Artists, and which Gilroy adapted himself from his own novel, Gilroy wrote and directed three more independently financed feature films, Once in Paris from 1978, the Gig in 1985, and The Luckiest Man in the World in 1989. Gilroy died in 2015 at the age of 89, but in addition to his own writing and directing, Gilroy's legacy to cinema should also include the work of his three sons, whose collective accomplishments are quite impressive on their own. Tony Gilroy earned Oscar nominations for both his writing and directing of the acclaimed 2007 movie Michael Clayton, starring George Clooney, and John Gilroy, is a successful editor of both smaller independent films and blockbusters like Star Wars Rogue One. On this episode of Cinema Talk, I discuss From Noon Till Three with Dan Gilroy, the celebrated screenwriter and director behind 2014's Nightcrawler, which earned him an Academy Award nomination for Best Screenplay, 2017's Roman J. Israel Esquire, which gained Denzel Washington an Oscar nomination for Best Actor, and 2019's Netflix movie Velvet Buzzsaw, a satire of the art world. Be warned, spoilers abound in our talk on From Noon Till Three, an unpredictable movie that we recommend you see before listening to our conversation. Here now is my talk with Dan Gilroy. Dan Gilroy, welcome to Cinema Talk. It's nice to have you. Thanks for having me. It's an exciting event. The the, the reemergence of From Noon Till Three. I'm excited. And it's and, and it's not just our screening too. There have been uh, other discussions of it recently too. Um, even after we planned the screening, I know uh, Quentin Tarantino has come out uh, recently. To, he as a as a big fan. He just discovered it too recently. I did not know that. Is that really wow? When it's did true. that happen? 
There have been he's been doing podcasts with his new Beverly Cinema right. uh, hosts, and they did a whole episode where they talked about Blu-rays they recently discovered, and he did a whole segment on from noon till three. And he's a big Bronson fan, but didn't didn't catch up with it like myself until you know just recently. That is so heartening to hear. I mean, I'm just an enormous Quentin Tarantino fan, and that he's that he's looking at it that way. I know it was re-released on uh, on some label that does bring back films that were seemingly passed over and didn't get their due. I do know that. Yeah, there was a Blu-ray uh, by Twilight Time. Right, that was what it was. Which was a right. company run by uh, a guy who passed away named Nick Redman, um, uh, who just put, put out a lot of great stuff on Blu-ray. And there's a really nice essay inside by uh, Nick's wife, Julie Kurgo, okay. uh, who talks about the appreciation for the film, too. So, yeah, it is. It is. And I think it's been on Amazon Prime. And so I think people have had a chance to uh, to catch up and see it. So were you able to watch it just recently? Uh, I know you wanted to talk about uh, some aspects of the. Yeah. Film. Can I go sort of into how I watched it and what struck me at first? Is that a format that you. Absolutely. Please. So I literally haven't watched the film in 45 years. And that's dating back pretty much probably when it came out in 75. I mean, and I was on the set every day as an extra, and my father was very inclusive with my brother, Johnny and I, because that summer was shot over the summer. So we were on the set every day. So I was intimately involved in aware of the production, but I had not seen it really since 75. And it was a really interesting experience in a lot of ways. There's so much that's unique and really ahead of its time to discuss. And I'm looking forward to do that. But I do have to start by something that hit me, and that's addressing the big scene in the film, which is when Bronson gets left behind by, you know, the gang at Jill Ireland's house. And what follows after some buildup is really essentially an armed assault on her. There's really no other way of looking at it. And it's jarring. And it's, you know, disturbing in a lot of ways to watch it today because there's just no defense of it through anything resembling what you could call a contemporary lens. I think it's, there's a lot of films that are sort of encountering plot points on this level, but it has to be noted, but um, there's just a lot of twists and turns between them that follow that scene and they then form this larger part of the narrative as I was watching it. And it started to really strike me that in the third act, it really transforms into something else entirely. And that's one of the things that, 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 that stands out watching it today. And that's what a, what a wholly original story Frank really created on so many levels. Um, it's this whimsical Western romance on the surface. And it gradually transforms and addresses in really kind of an, an absolutely unvarnished way, this powerful theme of like truth versus myth and facts versus reality. I mean, I hope I'm not stepping on where you want to go with this because I, I, I. No, no. It, it's, <laughs> it's watching it now. I just feel it's, it's become contemporary. I mean, in a way with regards to fake news and the spinning of truth, you know, for personal purposes. Um, I mean, you go back to the Western era and, and, and these supposedly factual books and serialized books about events in the West were really what defined that entire era. And in, That's, in a lot of ways, it's, it's like the internet defines events today. And the movie really becomes at the end about the creation of this huge false legend. And, and then takes this radical turn about what it does to the people involved. I mean, one of them dies. I mean, it's big major spoiler alert. I should have said it before. The other gets committed to an insane asylum. So as the film progresses, it's driven by this like, holy, I forgot about it. This unexpected, completely nihilistic commentary of like the dangers of what altering facts can do and where they can go. And, and all the while, and this is really mind blowing to me, Frank, who's such an incredible writer, 
keeps the sense of playfulness and humor, which is just an incredible accomplishment. And I think Frank was really far ahead of his time on it. Yeah, that's exactly what I wrote down. Is that, and, and I think it's what makes it stand out today. Is it's this generally sweet, whimsical movie that takes us totally unpredictably uh, towards what is an absurdist and tragicomic conclusion. Um, and that kind of ending was not out of place in 70s Hollywood cinema, but it certainly kind of stands out now. You know, the 70s cinema that was generally on a bummer trip after... You know, all the assassination of the 60s. And we were Watergate there. We remember that. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of bumper stuff going on. Yeah. So, you know, when it came, so that, that wasn't so unusual when it came to endies, endings. Um, and also, the, the, I read the, the novel, and the, the movie doesn't end nearly as, uh, quite as grimly as the book. In the book, he, you know, Graham dies of, uh, of bullet wounds <laughs> yeah. he suffers yeah. from the, um, but uh, you mentioned the, the whole thing about truth and, and, and legends. And uh, when, when I was reading about the movie, I, wasn't, I was uh, su- uh, not surprised to learn that I wasn't the first person to guess that perhaps uh, there was a, a, a part of um, your father's writing that uh, was inspired by the ending of The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Uh, where uh, the newspaper editor says, you know, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Um, It's it's funny, I had to look up the exact quote, and it was an article about how often that quote from the man who shot Liberty Valance gets twisted around and and screwed up by people. Um, I think there's a thematic connection between those films, and my father was very conversant with the man who shot Liberty Valance. I mean, you could say my father was conversant. He grew up on you know, his era. He grew up on westerns and war movies. He was I'm I'm sure he saw pretty much every western that was probably made or, or got released at that time. And 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 Liberty Valance was obviously one of the most iconic films that sort of started to transform the genre. And he was very aware of it. He was very Frank was very aware of of I, I wouldn't I mean to a degree this is social commentary. I mean I think he was always trying to inject something to his work. It's something I think Johnny and Tony and I do in our work as well. I think that was handed down. I think it's difficult for us to imagine to do something that doesn't have some relevance. And I think I think he found a platform and a story to to address something that 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 at his time was probably contemporary as well in the seventies. There was there was things going on the, the 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 deconstruction of myths, the the taking apart of what what made a legend. So I think as much as I'm saying I feel it's contemporary now, I'm sure my father felt it was contemporary in his day as well for different reasons. Yeah, and there's also a lot about taking control of the myth and taking control of your image and whatever your public image is and to whatever tragic end that might come to. But uh, because we were delayed a little bit in, in our talk today, I was able to watch from start to finish The Fastest Gun Alive from 1956, oh, yeah. which is a Western based on, a, I think, a, a teleplay that he that wrote. That he wrote, right? yeah. Uh, and the, that was called The Last Notch, I guess. The, the it was TV called version. The Last Notch when it, when it was a live TV show. And it was so successful that it was bought for that time. I don't remember the exact number, but for a lot of money. And it was turned into a film with Glenn Ford. And, right. and for the audiences watching, in essence, it's about a guy who, who at the time was the fastest gun you know, slinger in the West who married and settled down and decided he was no longer going to ever shoot or kill somebody and he tries to become uh, a store clerk in a sleepy town but you know his past life catches up people hear about him or, or have heard seen seen witnessed an event in which he finally revealed who he was and i'm, I'm mangling his beautiful story here but it, it does have to do with a guy confronting 
the, the myth of what he's become, trying to put it behind him. Um, and I, I, I think, I think, I think that's a stepping stone in many ways to from noon till three thematically what Frank saw you could do with the genre. Um, yeah. And it was very successful in its day. Yeah, I guess it was a hit. And, and, and I was glad I watched it to the end because there are two big twists at the end, at least of the movie. I don't know about the teleplay, but at the mo- in the end of the movie, Glenn Ford uh, reveals that he actually is, isn't uh, as good a, a gunshot as, every, as everyone thinks. He's actually living the legend of his father, of his own father. And, then at the ve- and also at the very end, after he has the showdown with Broderick Crawford, who's the one right. challenging people the whole movie, he he fakes his own death, and and you and, see you see the and, tombstone, and there's the legend again. Yes, you see the legend of the gunslinger. So it, it really yeah. thematically and almost narratively, you're starting to see parallels between the two films. It's true, definitely for sure. Well, let's go back to um, you being on the set of the film. You are uh, can we can we actually see you in the in the finished? Yeah, film? there's a scene with my brother Johnny and I. We're extras, and I, I, it comes when there's a stagecoach coming into town. And, and it's going past a large crowd of people. And somewhere in that crowd, I'm there and my brother John is there. It's mixed up in the crowd. So I think that's, that, that's okay. as far as much as you're going to see it. And I remember my brother Johnny and I made a mistake because we'd never been extras before. And I was thinking, like an actor, which I was not at 15 years old, oh, the stagecoach is coming to town. I'm going to look at the stagecoach when it comes by. And I remember after the take, my father coming up and go, you're the only two who looked at the camera. He goes, you don't look at the camera. And I was going, but, but dad, like stagecoach is only coming to town once in a while. I would turn to look at the, I'm arguing with him about why I would look. He's going, no, you don't look at the camera. You never look at the stagecoach. So I remember that incident. A little chagrined, actually. But you got to watch the, the rest of the filming too? Uh... It was a really incredibly special experience. It was 1974. My father started it. It was like perfect, right when school let out in June. Uh, he brought us all out. We were, had a house up in Malibu and every day he'd go to work. My brother, John, and I would go in the car with him. It was shot entirely, not entirely because the house was built out in Thousand Oaks, but everything else we shot on the Warner's lot in 74. And I'm 15 years old. My brother's 15 years old. Bronson's kids are there. They're like 14 and 15. And we just had complete run of the entire Warner's back lot every day. So that's back when Warner's had a backlot. The Shangri-La set from like 1939 movie was there where they were shooting Kung Fu. Entire Western streets, New York City streets. I mean, and we had, there was nobody stopping you. There was nowhere you couldn't go. (laughs) And so it was this magical, amazing time eating in the commissary every day with sort of right out of uh, Blazing Saddles, the number of people that are coming in. And I mean, they might've been shooting Blazing Saddles there for all. Yeah, it's 74, right? I remember that time, right? my father was friends with George Jenkins, the production designer. And I remember they were shooting all the president's men. And I remember on a couple of occasions going into the entire Washington Post set and walking around oh, right on the wow. next soundstage. So it was this incredible, phenomenal experience. But um, but getting back to the movie, it was it was watching a movie get get made. And I'd never seen that happen before. And it was really kind of profound. I realized one, how much I enjoyed being on a set. And I, I like the process of it. And I like, I like the vibe of it. I like the creative people getting together and doing it. Um, so it was, it was a pretty special time. You mentioned the house. And so were the, uh, was the exterior of the house and the interior of the house, the same no, location? No, the exterior okay. of the house was out where, so there's, there's Los Angeles and then there's the Valley out in the Valley toward Chatsworth and Thousand Oaks out toward a more arid desert. They built 
this incredible house. It was just a facade. But when you drive up, there was this incredible four-story facade. And, and for at least two or three weeks, we, everybody's driving out there and you're out in the middle of nowhere. And I remember Bronson had this thing where right away he, uh, he found these pieces of pipe and he would take a nail and a piece of paper and he'd wrap it up and he'd make a blowgun. And he, and he, <laughs> he would shoot these nails like a hundred yards. It was like unbelievable into the wood of the house. And within a couple of days, everybody on the set now is making blowguns because Charlie's doing it. And the whole back of the set, there were these like like darts, these nail darts where people just shooting everything. It finally got to the point where, where the first AD, who was as tough, tough as nails, AD named Russ Saunders, who went back to playing football with like uh, John Wayne, finally screamed at people like, I don't care if Charlie's doing it. Nobody can. Anyway, these were silly little stories. But, um, but you know, the one thing I, I wanted to mention in watching the films as well is that what struck me is, is the way my father used Bronson and, and the way Bronson is really being used in this film because, because taking people back who weren't there, he's the hard action guy of his time. I mean, here he is. He's, in, he's basically in the early 70s. He's coming off Mechanic, Death Wish, Hard Times, Break Hard Pass, all of which are action and suspense driven with this, his total powerful, unique physical and brooding presence. And that's what's driving him. And here he steps into out of the blue from noon till three. And I think a lot of people were shocked both by the comedy romance angle and also by what we were talking about a minute ago, this meditative study of old West myth-making, you know, Bronson's playing completely against type in this movie and watching today, I think he's doing it really effectively. He, he displays this humor and gentleness and the scenes between he and Jill are, you know, I'm biased. I think there's some of his best work. But saying that, I do remember my father saying that after the shoot, when Charlie and Jill saw the finished film, Charlie reached out to my father and told him specifically how proud he was of what they'd made together and how he really thought it was really one of his more important works. And I remember when the casting was happening before the shoot, Bronson's name came up. I don't believe it was my father's first choice. I think Nicholson probably had that slot. But when Bronson then became the more viable option, my father talked about conversations he was having with Bronson, in which Bronson was very much expressing this desire to branch out and really stretch into other work. And, you know, Bronson was convinced he could do more than these action films. And, and I think he was right to do so because here he is, he's pulling it off, I think really incredibly effectively. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, and, and he has a, he, he has a few moments in there where he's the, he's the old tough guy, you know, when he stands down the guys in his gang and, and, uh, and then towards the end, as he's as he's kind of, you know, really falling apart and, and becoming more violent in the process, you know, there are it's not it's not something where it's completely out of his uh, wheelhouse. But uh, he's, you know, uh, I think Roger Ebert mentioned in his review how 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 much range he does show within that, you know, within what we usually expect from from Bronson in this specific. Film. He makes that part of that I, bandwidth I, work. It's like I find myself leaning into his character. He's not telling me a lot. There's. There is a sort of menace to his character. You can't tell when he's lying or not lying or when he's sincere or insincere. Right. And I think that's a really good quality to have in this film about where he's coming from. Because at the end, when you realize the legend is not anything what it was presented, you start replaying in your head going, he really was a complete ne'er-do-well, a brilliant ne'er-do-well who, spun, who actually helped contribute, spin this legend by the lies he's telling. But I, I do find myself leaning into his performance, which I like. Yeah, and you could say the same thing about Jill Ireland too. Yeah. I think 
she, you know, it's 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 very much a Bronson vehicle, but it's really her character and her choices that, you know, that drive the the narrative. Perhaps they're both deluded people, but uh, Amanda's delusions and standards are, you know, really become to be dangerous and even deadly to both of them. It's a real two. Um, it's know, a real she, two-hander. I mean, I mean, try acting yes. against Charlie Bronson all of your own. She more than holds her own. Anytime they're on the screen, I find myself watching her easily as much as I'm watching him. She has real presence. I mean, she's she's totally tuned into the character. She was, she was a big proponent. See, my father wanted to rehearse, and it became an issue. Charlie came to my father and said, "I don't rehearse. I'm not rehearsing." I mean, it became a real like their first big. Uh, you know, flashpoint. And Jill was the one who stepped in and said, I want to rehearse with Frank. And they started to do it. And, and, and so here's Jill, you know, it really shows in her work. She's taking it very seriously, this part, and she's really doing a great job. It's very effective. And, and it's a lot of range in it as well. Yeah. It's her, I think it's her definitive yeah. performance, certainly among the films she made with Bronson, but uh, you know, and she also gets to sing in it too. Yeah. You get to hear her sing yeah. at the end too. And she's, she does quite a nice job with it. How, have you thought about how these two characters, Amanda and Graham, uh, fit in among among your father's characters? Is there is there a type that you could say you know oh they're dreamers or or they're maybe slightly deluded people that you no know, Frank's that, Frank's that, body of work is it, it covers a wide swath because because he did what what most of us do who are writers and then or write, become writer directors which is you do commercial jobs so he was doing commercial jobs throughout the throughout the 50s and in, in the earlier 60s um and those commercial jobs were uh, gallant hours with Jimmy Cagney um he's doing doctoring work on uh on uh, uh Fort Zindernoff what's I forget what it's called the desert film i mean he's doing a lot of commercial stuff that, that he's doing it for money and he's doing it to hone his craft. But then the defining moment in Frank's career was when he goes off to Broadway and does the subject of his roses and wins the Pulitzer Prize. Frank was very much an autobiographical writer when he, when he was writing about things that were serious to him. So he's writing a lot of autobiographical stuff. But then when he starts to direct in the, in the later 60s, this is before From Noon Till Three, He's doing very realistic things. He, he won a silver bear at Berlin with, uh, with desperate characters. Um, He's uh, he he, uh, he does a movie called The Gig, which is about it's about uh, musicians. So that sort of is a more realistic thing. But in 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 the canon of work of his more commercial projects, I can't say that they really fall into any specific category. He really he was yeah. really covering a lot of ground. He was doing plays. He was writing TV. He was writing movies. He's doing jobs for money. He's doing jobs for himself. So. It, he's he's crafting a career that covers a lot of bases of which this was just one facet yeah and maybe the middle ground between that realistic work and the um whimsical you know almost fantasy type element of from noon till three is something like the only game in town which is about these um you know elizabeth taylor and warren Beatty are these two dreamers living in vegas who you know who almost make a go of a of a kind of a fantasy life together and 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 then ultimately kind of work it out in a realistic way. I think there's a lot of truth in that what you just said and I think you can look at a writer's career and if you look closely and 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 acutely, you can start to see connections like that. You can start to see that this wouldn't probably 
that existed without this, or this probably was affected by something that came earlier. You are affected by the things you do. You learn on every script that you write. You suddenly see doors that open up. And, and I think there's truth in that connection with, with uh, The Only Game. It, uh, it was directed by George Stevens. And I wanted, since you mentioned The House, I wanted to go back and say The House in From Noon to Three really reminds me of uh, The House in Giant. I wondered if that was... And a, and a direct only. I was too young to be a part of like the production design meetings, but I picked up on that as well. It's made very similar. But you know, we should talk a little bit about some of the people involved behind the camera. So, sure. So, a key component to this film is the cinematographer, Lucian Ballard. So, I wrote down some of Lucian's credits, and I just have to say this is a guy, Lucian Ballard, who goes all the way back to silent films. And I mean, he does The Getaway, The Wild Bunch, True Grit. City of Fear, um, um, uh, The Outlaw in 1943. He's married to Merle Oberon in the 30s. I remember he was very dapper in style. He always wore, not he didn't wear khaki pants, but he was like whitish khaki clothes. And he was very stylish, had sort of a safari jacket on all the time. And he had panache. I remember him up on the, on the crane, you know, like looking down with these stylists. He was a very stylish guy. And my father leaned very heavily on Lucian's cinematography. Uh, my father was, you know, a writer turned director and often that's cinematography is not the strength. So, so Lucian played a big part in this film. And there's some really nice camera work. I have to say, I think that Lucian's doing it. Um, the other person who's critical to this whole thing is the guy who bought the book and brought it to Warner Brothers, which is a guy named Mike Frankovich. So Mike Frank, which is a very big producer, this was the last film he produced. But again, just looking at Mike's credits, I mean, he's doing he did The Shootist. He did uh, he did uh, Maroon. He did Bob Carroll, Ted and Alice. I mean, he goes all the way back to 1935 as well. And, and that forms part of one of the memories I have, which was because it was on the Warner's lot in 74. This was a studio picture. There was a crew of guys, mostly guys, very few women, unfortunately, but mostly guys. And these guys have been working at Warner Brothers since like the 30s. So the guy named Al Overton who did the sound and Russ Saunders, who was the AD. It's, it's this bridge back to like the original filmmaking days. And that vibe was sort of on the set. These guys have been doing, this is probably their hundredth picture, every one of these people. And Lucian is just, I mean, just to them, they were such veteran grinders, you know? I mean, it was really interesting to pick up on that vibe. I really thought, I felt I got to see a window into what old movie making really was like, because that they came from that era. Most of the people who worked on this film, the other person is Elmer Bernstein, his score. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful score. I think the melody of uh, uh, From Noon Till Three, the song itself with the lyrics, I've never forgotten. Oddly enough, I find myself once in a while remembering the lyrics of that song and his score as well uh, serves the film incredibly well. And, uh, and he's in and it he's, Elmer's in it. And, and I, yeah. I work with with uh, composers when I tell them that I met Elmer Bernstein, they're like, they want to hear everything about it. I mean, the guy is revered among composers. He oh, really yeah. is. One of the and best. he was just a wonderful guy. I mean, I remember on the set, just a funny, lovely, great guy. I mean, just a really easygoing guy. Well, that's unusual, right? Because typically if the film is finished or almost finished before the director starts talking to the composer. Right. But he had to be involved because. The song had to exactly. be part of the, the And my father was very collaborative. I'm sure my father, I'm sure when that conversation happened and Elmer said, can I be on the set? My father said, yes. I remember Elmer was on the set quite a bit. I mean, he liked hanging around on the set and he liked us. He liked hanging around with the kids, you know, my brother and I and Bronson's kids. That's great. 
But I, and then in this scene with Elmer Bernstein as the two composers is the one who sings the song is uh, is Alan Bergman right. who wrote the lyrics with his with Marilyn right. Bergman. Yeah, he does a nice job with it too. He does. It's a haunting song. It's a it's a really yeah. powerful, oddly haunting song. Um, it's the, it saves. Yeah, radio. it does. Um, so uh, you know, you mentioned um, the movie being a two hander, and it very much is. And I think one of the reasons why I didn't seek it out for such a long time was that I just assumed knowing that your father wrote plays and, uh, and, and what I knew about the movie, that it was basically the two of them in a house, the whole movie. But it's, it's, it's very cinematic, especially the opening yeah. sequence, the dream sequence, and, and then the, you know, the whole second half of the <laughs> film. And, and uh, I, I, guess, I guess you're saying that... Uh, and, 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 I, I like desperate characters too, and uh, clearly, you know, your your uh, Frank knew how to make a make a, an actual a real right. movie. It wasn't it, that that wasn't just a filmed play, um, and uh, and I guess I guess you're saying that you know a way to do it was just to surround yourself with these people who you know have had decades of you know a filmmaking, experience. particularly because of the genre. I mean, I think my father was really smart in the regards of using Lucian. Again, the guy's coming off. Guys coming off the Wild yeah. Bunch, I mean, and and and, yeah. and and True Grit. I think he did ride ride the high yeah, country. Ride the high too, country. Right? I mean, he's a guy who's shooting the best Western stuff around at that time, literally shooting the best. So I I think, yeah. I mean, when I did my first film, Nightcrawler, I I got was lucky enough, fortunate enough to work with Robert Ellswit, who shot Boogie Nights, and I'm shooting a movie in L.A. and I very much leaned into Robert Ellswit. I mean, I certainly have my own opinions and. And I'm sure Frank had his own opinions as well, but 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 I was recreating a way of like I'm going to lean into somebody who really knows how to shoot this world, and I think it was really wise of Frank to do that. Yeah, um, the, your your father father published a book of his own production diaries called uh, "A Wake Up Screening" yeah. and in uh, 1993, but he only included the four other feature films he directed, and not from noon till three. So I'm really glad we're able to talk to you today. Um, uh, was that because it, uh, he didn't include it because it was his only fully back studio feature and he, he, he just didn't keep a diary during production or. He, he was keeping he, uh, a, he started keeping a diary. My memory is he started keeping a diary in 69. So I'm sure he was keeping a diary. Mm. I think he saw the other four films as, as literally independent films in which he had much more control. Um, I don't remember an enormous number of creative fights that he had with the studio, but I'm sure they were enough where where things were changed or maybe he didn't have full control over how it was marketed or you know what the performance of it ultimately was or how it was perceived i think he felt closer to the other four films again because he they were made on a shoestring budget he's 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 literally standing side by side with the other filmmakers every morning and night while he's shooting i think he felt closer to it um creatively and that's probably why he included it i know he loved from noon till three i mean it should never he never he he never lost any of his love for the film as the years went by. And none of us really did. I mean, I just haven't had a chance to see it, but, but he was always extraordinarily proud of it. He was able to keep it very faithful to his novel, which I, I guess was published a couple of years before production began. But did you know the uh, particular inspiration for the novel? Obviously he had all this experience writing for television Westerns and, 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 uh, the last notch and and other western stuff before was there do you know if there was a 
particular no it's funny i do story? remember I, so we would always all eat dinner together and my father worked at the house so he was always writing upstairs so when he was done writing he'd come down he'd have dinner with us <clears throat> and he was around during the day as well but i do remember when he was starting to write from when he started to write the book i remember sitting around the table and he was saying i i i want to say that he read a real a real a real event that happened or some piece of an event and i remember at the table going like i'm thinking of doing a story about a guy who who doesn't want to go on a robbery because he feels he has a bad feeling about it. And he, and he stays behind with this woman. I remember him telling the story. And I do remember over the next couple months, him sort of filling us in like, and then this is going to happen. And I never got to the point where then he finished it. And he goes, I don't have a title. And the only thing any of us knew, my mom probably knew more because she was reading it, but we boys were in school in middle school, high school, whatever it was. And he was going like, well, I don't have a title. What should I call it? And my brother, John, there's a scene where, where they go and there's a sound in the barn and, and there's a kicking and she goes, it's only a cow. And my brother, John, funnily or seriously said, why don't you call it? It's only a cow. I remember that. My, my father was thinking that was like absurd idea. And then uh, <laughs> I do remember that at the dinner table. And then, and then he came up with from noon till three, but it was one of those ones where he was filling us in while he was writing it at the dinner table. He was excited by it. There's, there's also um, among his television Western work, there's an episode of The Rifleman that he wrote where uh, Michael Landon plays an outlaw who's injured uh, trying to save Chuck Connors' kid. Right. And so he's separated from the gang is when they go off and do their robberies and stuff and spends, spends some time in the house with, uh, with Connors and the kid and falls in love with the woman and he gets rehabilitated just by being away from, from the outlaws. It's, it doesn't have any kind of great irony at the end, like uh, from noon till three or, or, the, or uh, the last notch. But uh, again, you can see the kind of shell of an idea of, a, of an outlaw being separated from his gang. I didn't know that was the plot. I did not know that was the plot of the rifleman. He always, I think he did more than one rifleman. Maybe he only did one. But that's interesting you're saying that. that I can see the direct connection between that story and, and from noon till three. See, that's I think I think he's exploring things there of a guy, a gangster, you know, or, or outlaw being left behind at a house. I mean, there's direct yeah. connection there. I did not know that. That's actually really interesting. I'll send you. Uh, I'll, I'll send you the link to it later. It's it, you can watch it. He did a bunch later. of Have Gun Will Travels. He did a lot of Western TV work. He did. Uh, wanted Wanted Dead or Alive. He did. Those. These were all. He was a big Western TV guy. Yeah. There was a TV show, uh, Disney uh, Western show. That I think he might have even had a hand in creating a call. Is it Texas Te John Texas? Slaughter? Texas John Slaughter, I right? Don't know. Have you ever seen any I, of those? I, I've seen one. I don't know if he helped create it, but I definitely know okay. he, uh, he worked on it. Yeah. Texas John Slaughter. Yeah. That's, that's one I, you know, the Disney stuff is so hard yeah. to find because they, you know, they, they archive yeah. it, but I'd, I'd love to be able to see that. I don't think it's going to be showing up on Disney Plus anytime soon. Maybe. We can only hope. <laughs> we can oh. only hope. Do you, uh, he, 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 as I mentioned earlier, he softened the ending a little bit, uh, and Graham winds up, uh, it's a much more kind of whimsical, absurdist comic, comic ending of the film. But in the book, he, he dies right. suffering, uh, once do you, do you, do you remember if there was a moment where he pondered keeping that original ending or if he was forced to change I the I don't ending? remember. And I'm, I'm going to posit a guess here as somebody who works in the studio system. I have no doubt that that was a Mike Frankovich Warner Brothers note. I mean, right. I, I mean, they paid, they paid good money for the book. 
Um, Frank was not like a, a big known director. Um, I mean, he was known to a degree, but the, here's a big Western with Charles Bronson. It's a big asset for the studio. And, and like you said, it's fairly faithful to the book, but I can imagine when they got to the end, it was probably like, Frank, you know, uh, we want this to be a more commercial ending. And I don't recall any conversations where Frank felt that, that things were suffering creatively. I, I, I don't believe he would have done it if he felt it was creatively uh, diminishing his work. He, he would have fought it. So he must have been in tune with I think, it to some degree. I, th- I think it works just yeah. as well as the ending of the book. He never complained um, about changing the ending ever. Well, and if anything, the ending of the film makes Amanda's death that much more shocking, you know, when it happens, because it's just, and when you reflect on it, it's really, a, you know, a, you know, amazing, the uh, act of will, uh, you know, on her, on her. You can't part. predict where this movie is going. If you no. can't at any moment, you don't know where this movie's going to go, which is. It's just breathtaking to me to watch him be doing this. I mean, because it's kind of what I'm doing in my work right now. Um, and and I guess I got that spirit. It's just this unpredictable, out-of-the-box way of doing a movie. Um, and I give him huge points for it now. I'm so glad I got to watch it again. Well, what I wrote down was that, uh, thinking if, uh, if you've ever thought at all about the influence of From Noon to Three, is that your stories of, uh, and your films... Uh, are made unpredictable because they're driven by these unusual outsider protagonists who, you know, could could go any way. And they live in their own world. And they're either ruled by a very specific code of honor, uh, like Roman Israel, or a, a complete lack of one, like Jake Gyllenhaal and Nightcrawler. Yeah, I, the characters do tend to take you to those places. But the other thing as well is, and I can see it in this, I, Frank is commenting here, the, his, his narrative. So, so he's taking these characters and rather than follow the characters directly through their character arcs, he's now imposing this template of narrative commentary and it's affecting the story. The story is starting, mm. the story starts to get driven by the commentary side of it. And the characters start to be, be moving along alongside the commentary. He's doing that consciously because the commentary is obviously very important to him. The, the power of the myth. What is the West built on? You know, how much of it was real, if you have any of it? You know, was it all a sham? This was an important thing for the film. And he's doing that. And I do do that in my films. You know, I take these strong characters, but then I sort of have the same mindset. I want to say something. And it's a fine line when you're, when you're doing a movie like that. And, and you have to be very careful because you could wind up with a message, a message movie, God help you. But you could wind up on a soapbox. I think Frank thread the needle really well here. I think it's a really entertaining film. And I think, I think, it, it's it's a high wire act when you do this. When you start thinking that that, that social commentary is a part of my film, and, and like in the seventies, it was not an uncommon way of thinking. You know, it was funny when Nightcrawler came out. People came up after and goes, "God, it really is like it's about something." And I said, "God, it's, you have to understand." I I remember in the seventies where if you made a film and it wasn't about something, people go like, "Why are you making a film? What's the point?" Like, look at the Wild Bunch. I mean, look, look at all the themes that are involved in the Wild Bunch. Look at all the themes involved in True Grit. I mean, there's just so much going on. So I think Frank Frank's working in the seventies. He's trying to tell a story about these strong characters, but at the same time, he's not going to allow them to drive his story. His story is going to be driven by what he wants to say about this world. And and again, very tough needle to thread, but he does it. Do you think uh, that gives it an almost meta quality? 
I think I feel a little bit of that, you know, in that it's about storytelling. And then there's a book called From Noon to Three. We're Absolutely. Based on a book called From Absolutely. Noon to Three. Absolutely. It's like a Hall of Mirrors. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's about the legend, the creation of the legend within the movie with the song, the title of the film. And, uh, right. and that's what makes it feel fresh. It's odd. There's so many films I watched in the seventies that don't feel fresh, particularly ones that have been forgotten. And a lot of times they're forgotten and you go like, well, I can maybe see why you know, it was passed over. This one just resonates. The moment it came on, I was going like, this just feels really contemporary thematically to me. And you said you're moving towards more of that in, in your writing right now is I, I, certainly something like velvet, velvet buzzsaw has a, you know, uh, a quasi meta element. to it, it. That Quasi meta element. They look, all three movies that I've directed have some level of commentary. If I'm moving toward anything, it might be moving away from commentary a little bit. I think, I think it's, okay. it's, it's like I said, it's very difficult to do. Um, I've done it effectively at times and maybe a little less effectively at times. Other times, part of it's part of the fact that I've only directed three films. You know, I, my directing is trying to catch up to my writing, to be totally honest. Um, I'm doing it. But but, you know, here's Frank doing the same sort of thing, working in, in a major studio system with one of the biggest assets of his day. And it, it, I, I we never he never he never discussed nervousness or fear, but it must have been nerve wracking at times. To take to take to take this huge star and say I'm going to look at him in an entirely different way. I'm not going to look at him in any way that you ever seen him before. And I didn't go back and read all the reviews from the day, but I'm sure there were many yeah. people that were taken aback. And what is this? And not just by the thematic, you know, creation that he's done and the narrative creation that he's done, but just the way that Bronson is moving through the film. It's a really gutsy thing to do. What he what he's doing here, incredibly gutsy. But he was that guy. He was, there was no challenge that he was not like afraid of facing. He was, he was, a, he'd come out of World War II, you know, he was a tough guy from the Bronx. I mean, he's sweet, smart, but, but a tough kid from the Bronx who got drafted at 18 and saw combat in World War II. So he was, he was nobody's pushover, that's for sure. And so he and Bronson probably connected on that level. I'm sure Charlie, I'm not saying Charlie saw his match. Charlie was a coal miner. So I can't say anybody was Charlie's match physically or something like that, but I'm sure my father, my father had steel inside of him. And I'm, I'm sure Charlie saw that early on and they connected on that. You know, it's funny when he shows up at the end wearing the hospital gown. Right. Uh, I was reminded that if there are multiple people who tell the story of working on a film with Bronson, where he tells a story about how when he was a, a, a kid in a uh, coal mining family, that the family was so poor that he had to wear his, his sister's dress. I read that. It's inconceivable, the level of poverty that he must have gone through for that to be the case. I mean, yeah. I, he was, Charlie was a wonderful guy to hang out with, very friendly, great sense of humor. Huh. Um, you know, the other person my father was really enthralled with working with was the leader of the gang, a guy named Doug Fowley. And Doug yeah. Fowley was, you know, again, my father growing up with all these like studio films, Doug Fowley goes all the way back to the early 30s and was in Battleground and all these Westerns. And I remember, I remember the day that Doug Fowley showed up. My father was kind of in awe. It was sort of like, here's this guy. I mean, Bronson's the star of the film, but Bronson wasn't around when my father was going to the movies 30 years earlier. Doug Fowley was the guy who my father was looking up at the Bronx movie screen, 50 feet tall. And my father was utterly enamored with Doug Fowley. I mean, really, like he was like sort of starstruck by Doug Fowley, which was kind of interesting to watch. Douglas Fowley is the director of the movie within the movie in Singing in the Rain. Oh, God, he's the, really? He's, wow. he's the director. What is it? The, du the Dueling right, Cavalier? The Dueling Cavalier. Yeah, the guy yeah. with the little cap. 
yeah. had an incredible <laughs> career. I mean, again, these guys, these, these go back to the silent era. I mean, this, the, 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 all of these people yeah. are connected to the almost the earliest. I mean, obviously, it was back in the early 20s as well. But these people all connect to the earliest days of filmmaking. And they're there in the 70s. And now here, me and Johnny and Tony, we're sort of now 45 years past it. But there's this is long arc that I feel connected to. Well, I think it's it's really a part of the tradition of, of classical Hollywood filmmaking. It's not a um, it's a it's you know, it's a it's an it's an offbeat an unusual movie, which, you know, we've, we've discussed and it's unpredictable, but it's also very much a, a part of the, of the classical tradition, which isn't really the, as a, when, when uh, your father was writing and directing movies, wasn't, wasn't necessarily the tradition he was working under, uh, at least in terms of the studio resources. He made all the other films, I guess, uh, independently. All independently, um, raise the money independently, complete creative control, uh, uh, he would get his start, do what I do. I'm doing what he's doing. He would get Shirley MacLaine and get the financing. He would get, you know, the person he needed to get the finance and he would do the film and, and had complete creative control. But um, like I said, I think a lot of people would step into a movie with Charlie and Warner Brothers and go, I need to make a commercial movie. This is my time to make a commercial film. I'm going to hit every commercial button I can think of. And he just went completely the other way. He was like, I'm not even thinking about it. Um, and I, it's, it's really... It makes me feel really good to look back and see where he was creatively and what he was doing, because because I think I certainly aspire to that. I'm not as, I'm aspiring to do something, something new every time I step out to try to do something. I'm never trying to recreate anything. That's great. Do you do you um, have any other mem- memories of, of the film's reception? I said you I know you said you didn't read the reviews, but uh, do you remember? Was there any disappointment uh, that it, you know? And it wasn't a blockbuster. Yeah, was it? Did it? Did it do? Did it do well enough? No, I mean, it did. I don't think it did do well enough. I think there was disappointment. I have a vague memory, but I could be projecting my own experiences. Like I don't know if he felt the marketing was handled properly. And I think I think you look through the posters. There's a wide range of posters you can find for this. I think the studio's trying to find out how they can market this. You know, they don't, I think the studio's having trouble leaning into this. Uh, the marketing department's having trouble. I don't know if my father was happy on the release date. I don't remember exactly when it was, but I have some memory that he felt maybe it got buried a little bit. Um, reviews were mixed. And no, no matter what a writer, director, or filmmaker tells you, mixed reviews don't make you happy. I mean, I mean, you can always say I polarize people and that's fine. And there's some truth in that. And it's easy now to look back and go, wow, you made something that we're talking about 45 years later. But at the time, you do want everybody to love your, your stuff. You just did. You want, you want to get the 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. There was no Rotten Tomatoes back then, but you wanted to open up every magazine, the newspaper, and see the great review. He didn't get that. And I don't remember any grave disappointment about it. He, he was happy with the film he had made. But, but I don't think he was happy with, with how it was released, probably, how it was marketed. And, and the reception was probably left him feeling a little bit sort of like, not a hundred percent happy about it. Yeah, the the ads I've seen don't seem to hide too much that it's a period film or or a western, but uh, maybe and maybe that was a part of it too because this is this is the time, you know, mid mid to late seventies when the last of those kind of you know revisionist anti western westerns were being made, and even though Bronson went on to make uh, one more western the next year, this is really kind of the tail end, and there's. Very few from like seventy seven to seventy nine, and then Heaven's Gate comes along, and that 
that really is the end of the Western for a, a long time. After well, that. you can imagine if he'd gotten Nicholson, he was very happy that Bronson, but if he'd gotten Nicholson, you can yeah. imagine the marketing would have been very different because Nicholson already had an established uh, persona of, of insanity and craziness. And like, I'm going to see something unexpected. Right. And you can imagine the one sheet and poster probably would have leaned more heavily into this is an unexpected film dealing with the darkest myths and legends of the world. They would have somehow incorporated that. But what I what I get the sense when I look at the marketing material on this is Bronson is an action god at this period. This is where the money's coming from. How do we somehow keep that persona and and sell the movie? And so when you start to look at it that way, none of the myth making, nihilistic, legendary sort of deconstruction stuff that's never going to make it into your advertising. So I'm sure I'm sure if I was Frank and the movie performed the way it did, I probably would have thought they didn't present the film the way I made it. They didn't. They didn't. I'm putting words in Frank's mouth, but I'm trying to imagine what he would have thought. This is not the film I made. They're selling it in the wrong way. They should be leaning into it to some degree and get to other stuff. Let people know what they're walking into. Prep, prep, certainly prep the reviewers who probably walked in thinking they were going to see some fairly standard, you know, vaguely new take on a Western. And we're probably like, what the hell is this? You know? And I, right. I don't think it serves you well. A lot of people say, Oh, it should just come out of left field and roll over people. If something's really unique, it's not a bad idea to give some signal beforehand. Like this is really a different film. And this, this is the film we wanted to make. So just like, like, let me just preface this by saying this, this is, this is, this is taking you to places that you don't normally go to in a film. We're aware of that. We feel really comfortable and confident. I don't think there's anything wrong with teeing it up a little bit like that. But but if I had looked at the one sheets and not been a part of the film, I would have watched the movie and go, whoa, Jill Ireland kills herself at the end. He winds up in an insane asylum. And it's like, where, from where we started, what? Right. And now I'm going off to, to wherever I'm going to watch TV at home with Westerns that are just recycling the same form. I'm, I'm going like, it took a certain kind of person to really embrace it. And people did embrace it. The people who loved it at the time, there were definitely good reviews. Yeah, There were people yes. who loved it. And gave glowing reviews. Yeah. I mean, they've, a lot of people saw it for what it was, so which was really interesting. I wonder if there was ever a real possibility that Nicholson would do it because, you know, his next, the movie he made instead of this one, and I think his first film after Cuckoo's Nest is The Missouri Breaks, also a yeah. Western, and also where he's playing a kind of, yeah. a, you know, a, 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 you know, an outlaw who's, you know, a bit of a, you know, a bit like Bronson. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you can see they're circling the same territory. There's, the choices are being made on, on, on things that are not dissimilar. And you can see the choice that he made. And like I said, Frank was always very happy with Bronson. He was, I, I can't tell you how happy he was with working with him. I thought he did a great job. But Well, I think he's really special in the film. And, you know, it's, is this, this, is Bron this year's Bronson Centennial. So we picked three films this summer to show you know, of his, and this is, this is one we definitely wanted to show his, you know, his right. range. Um, and it really is, it really is an outlier. I mean, there aren't, there aren't many others where he strayed from the action formula. Um, maybe, maybe moments here and there in some of the films where he's a little bit lighter than, than uh, you expect, but uh, uh, he's, he's really, uh, he really has a lot of range in this one. Yeah. And he was aware of it. He, like I said, he called my father up and I was very specifically said this was like one of his favorite parts. And, and, and Jill's definitely as well. Jill was a huge fan of this film, both for herself and for Charlie. Yeah. It, I'm sure one of the reasons he wanted to do it was because it gave them a chance to have something really good. to do. Absolutely. Together. And they were, they were really a great, they were great together. I mean, they were just absolutely totally tied together. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a real love affair and that comes through on the screen too. 
And sometimes I think when you watch couples do scenes that involve, you know, love and romance and stuff, a lot of times it feels like somehow it's you're losing something because it exists in real life. But I don't feel that with this film. I do feel like they're sort of discovering each other as the film goes along rather than like they know each other well. Yeah, they're really sinking into the parts. They you they really, you know, because of you know, they're 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 characters who have a very, very specific vision of the world and or at least of their, you know, their own little yeah. moral world and, and and you and you feel that and and I agree, it feels like they're discovering each other. Um so I wanna wrap it up and just ask you about uh your father's other films. Uh, Des- Desperate characters is Got, at least got a release on on DVD at, at some point and is and is out there. But um, the, the films he made after From Noon to Three are are tough to find. Is there anything going on with them right now in terms of preservation uh, or or restoration to to get more eyes on them? I honestly don't know. I I would like to think that that they exist in a format that can be archived. Um, it would be tragic to think that that maybe they would be one of the films that would slip through and not be archived. Um, I, I don't think, I think Johnny, Tony and I, and my mom, we're still, we still oversee as a state. Um, I, but I haven't heard any conversation about re-releases of any of the other films. I honestly don't know. I mean, Desperate Characters is something I haven't seen again in 45, 40 years. I haven't seen that film. Right. And, and a number of his other films I haven't seen either, to be honest. Well, Paramount has the has the materials and negatives on Desperate Characters, but the other, uh, I think there's three more features that he wrote and directed, right? Uh, Once right. in Paris, The Gig, and uh, is it the the not the loneliest man, the luckiest man, it's yeah. luckiest man, um, and uh, and and so uh, just I'd be curious to know if uh, you know if they know where the where the elements are or uh, at the moment, and if anything could be done to to get more people. I don't know. It's actually, I'm glad you brought it up. I'm going to ask uh, my mom and my brother, brothers, see if they okay. know anything about it. Right. Well, we have a, um, we have a, a decent archive here at the university. We've got uh, the Wisconsin center for film and theater uh, research. It's got a lot of great uh, materials. Um, not, not so much uh, some, some film material, but a lot of papers uh, related to film and television. I just discovered today and, Doing a little research that we have all of Ulu Grossbard's uh, really? papers here. Yeah, did Ulu, go, so, Ulu didn't go to Wisconsin. Did Ulu go to Wisconsin? Not, I not, I had, I didn't get have enough time to, to see if that was true. But we have a, uh, a professor who established the archive, who did a lot of work uh, in the film world. You know, meeting with filmmakers and and wow. uh, and theater directors and 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 getting them to deposit their stuff here. So it, that 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 wasn't necessarily a connection. A lot of the biggest. Uh, collections are from graduates like uh, uh, Dory right. Sherry and, and Walt, Walter Wanger and, and um, people like that. And there's, they're really great collections. But uh, are you in Madison? Is that uh, where you are? Yeah, I'm in, I'm, I'm in Madison. It's a right great now, university. So. I mean, Wisconsin is a great, oh, great. university. It really is. A lot, I mean, it, it, it's a big school, but it's a legacy in terms in so many different areas, not the, not the least of which is politically. It's an incredible school. I mean, it, it really is. I agree, and it's it's nice to hear. Um, we've got a, it's a great film town too. So we've got uh, you know the, the Cinematech program. The students have their own f- student union film program. Um, we've got a film festival every right. year, and uh, and and we'd love to have you come and join us sometime. Invite me. I'll, I'll I'll make it. I'll try to make time. Okay, I, great. I, I like Madison, great. and I, I love talking to you. Well, good talking to you, my friend. Thanks, Dan.